my systematic theology professor. Dr. Hawkins will be joining us. I'm very excited about that. Um, he's going to be bringing a great word. His wife is going to be joining him as well. And so you guys will get to meet him, and we'll get to, uh, to hang out with one another. And then we also have the women's conference. That is also coming up. And so make sure that you guys uh, keep, keep track of all the things going on there. We have a couple things on Facebook. So if you want to go to Heartland Christian Family Church, um, you can find all the information for those two events there as well. Um, do you guys still have those things or those in the back, those flyers and stuff? So they do have flyers in the back. So if you want to bring those to your place of work or maybe you have, they have some smaller ones too, you can hand them out to some people that you feel like uh, would want to attend. Feel free to do that. That would be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a lot of things fairly quick, but uh, I think you guys can keep up with me on this. Uh, we're starting a new series for the summer. Uh, I'm really excited about this. It's called Rhythms for Life. Rhythms for Life, and this is out of the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at a lot of the important features of Psalms and what this means for us to read and to understand and to view it. Uh, I think it's very important for us to be able to look at Scripture properly. And the book of Psalms was actually very valuable to the people of Israel. Lots of history gone through in the midst of that book. David wrote a majority of the Psalms as well as some other people who were, uh, who were servants of the court. They were priests or they um, did some very specific things over choirs or over specific responsibilities they had. And so they wrote a lot of these psalms. And so I want to go through this because I feel like this could be something very beneficial for us to realize that this is a part of the way that we can live our lives is found in the book of Psalms. And so our perspective of God is important as we approach Scripture. We will spend some time in the formative book of Psalms throughout the summer, with the exception of a few special Sunday services, like when Dr. Hawkins is here, uh, Father's Day will be a little bit different, and then when we have the, the women's conference. Rhythm for Life uh, aims to communicate that the ancient literature of the Psalms is not only a gift of literature, but it is a way of life that we can find healing and wholeness in our Savior as we read through and, and pray along these words, with these words. According to a, a well-known theologian, uh, his name is Walter Brueggemann, he gives two tensions. He says the two tensions we find throughout the book are ones of disorientation and reorientation. I'm going to go through this in just a minute and what this means for us, but I think that this is something we can flesh out, that, that we will find that it contributes to the way that we process through a lot of things that happen to us as we're going through life. He says this about it. He says, the human organism struggles to maintain some kind of equilibrium in his or her own life. The sense of holistic orientation or the sense of being at home. You guys know what that feels like. The sense of being at home when you have that comfort and that, that you, you can lay out all the anxieties. You don't have any of these tensions, any of these things when you're home and you have comfort. You can relax. You don't have to put on a face for anybody. You don't have to, you're not at work. You're not doing anything like that. You can be in a place of rest. That feeling of being at home. And that's, that's a gift that's given and it's not forced. So as a, as a body of believers, as we believe in Jesus, this is not a forced process that you should force rest. This is something that's a gift to us. But we struggle to wrap that around in our, in our minds what that means. We struggle to it. We fight for it. Resist losing it and regularly deny its loss when it's gone. These two movements in life are important. The first one is a deep reluctance to let loose of a world that has passed away. That's the first thing that robs us of that desire. The deep struggle that we don't want to lose those things that we once knew that kept us in the place of bondage because it's familiarity. It's the deep sense that causes us not to have that sense of feeling at home. The second one is the capacity to embrace a new world that's being given. 
So the first tension is the tension, uh, the, the, the temptation for us to go backward and to look at what had once had happened. What we had once had, what we once found comfort, what, what we even just had a specific rhythm for, right? This, this series is called the Rhythms for Life. And so many times in our own rhythms and our habits that we've had, it's that tension of living that same life that we had that causes us to think back at those things. And then the other tension of the new rhythm that has been set before us, the new life as Christians, as new believers, as, as new creations, that we're supposed to be called to live a life of specificity there. And so those are the two tensions. Our perspective matters. In her book, in her, in her book Genre, a lady named Heather Dubro begins with an excerpt from a piece entitled, listen to this title, it's important, Murder at Marfilo, Marfilorp. Anybody like murder mystery stuff? You like that stuff? Okay. So just, this is just a, a short little paragraph, and she starts with a story in her book. The clock on the mantelpiece said 10.30, but someone had suggested recently that the clock was wrong. As the figure of the dead woman lay on the bed in the front room, a no less silent figure glided rapidly from the house. The only sounds to be heard were the ticking of that clock and the loud wailing of an infant. So while reading this, ask yourself, one, who's the dead woman? How did she die? Who is the silent figure? Why is the infant crying? What is the significance of time? These are the things that go through your head as you're reading through this murder mystery. The title is the main clue that the excerpt is from a, a murder mystery genre. Thus, it is likely, especially if you're an avid reader of mysteries, that you've already identified that the dead woman is the murder victim and the suspect that the silent figure is the murderer, right? Is that something you guys may have thought? Yeah. The baby is likely crying because the violent murder had awakened him or her, and then the clock's accuracy is significant because it marks the probable time of the murder. Anybody think the, those same thoughts? Thinking of a murder mystery? Okay. So clear your mind of the story now and read the same paragraph again, except this time... Under the title, The Personal History of David Marplethorpe. Ask yourself these same questions concerning the story, and you'll come up with different answers. Since biographies usually open with the birth of the hero, it's more likely that the baby is David Marplethorpe. The dead woman must be his mother who has tragically died in childbirth. The silent figure is probably the midwife leaving the scene. The time is the time of his birth. Perspective matters. The way that we read scripture and interpret scripture matters. But the problem is, how are we looking at it from our perspective? Are we viewing it for the things that we've encountered and gone through in our own lives? This is the process of what we call eisegesis. It's whenever you read your own interpretation into the text. Or are you reading it for how it was originally supposed to be written? What is the genre of what we're looking at? A lot of times we look at certain texts and we look at it as a murder mystery when we should really be looking at it as a biography type. Now, there are many types of genres that you can go through. This is just a brief example, so please don't overextend this example as the only two possibilities of how to read scripture. 
There are many different ways that we can do this. But when we read the book of Psalm, it's very, very important to understand the dynamic of what's happening and how this can apply to our life from that point. So don't read from your life into the text. Read from the text into your life. And you'll find that life will actually be breathed into you, even as you find that there are some pretty tentious psalms available. So the first psalm that I'm going to identify the first type. So what I'm going to do for you guys this morning, it's a little bit different than a typical typical uh, sermon because I'm setting up this series for us, okay? So we're not going to dive in and, and get really deep into specific passages. I'm going to give you some examples of how we can view and see this and how this is going to impact our lives. You guys with me here? Okay, cool. So the first one is called the Psalm of Orientation. Psalm of Orientation. These psalms here are not the most interesting because there's no great movement or like any tension in the midst of these psalms. There's no need for a resolve. Um, really what this is doing is this is setting a specific worldview for the reader. So this orients the reader into what they should be believing. So this is one rhythm. One rhythm that we find is an orientation. It's a specific place, like a foundation for where we should be set when we're reading the scripture. Bless you. For example, there's a couple of them that, um, that deal as, as talk about Jesus as king. They're called kingly psalms. So they establish what it means for God to be king over all the Israelites, what it means for him to be king of the universe. He's also the creator, so what it means for him to establish himself in that place. These orientation psalms. Just like when we start in the book of Genesis, we start with God as the creator of all things, showing that he is all-powerful and he is able to conquer even the serpent that comes to deceive man and woman. Amen? So this is orientation psalm. This lets you know this is the character and the nature of the God that we serve. The second one is called the psalm of disorientation. Psalms of disorientation. Now, there's actually two stages to disorientation, and we'll get into some of these things later on, but two stages. The first stage is actually the plummet into the, into the tension. So it's, it's the circumstance or the thing that causes tension in your life, the disappointment, the trial, that when you're hit with it, you're stunned with it, there's an immediate thought possibly that this is horrible and I don't, I'm not looking for a solution at the moment. I'm just taking in all the things that are happening. Now for some people, this disorientation stage lasts a little bit of time because it is very, like, like in the name, it's disorienting. It takes you away from your position of groundedness and you're feeling at home and it uproots that and it causes you to feel that tension and to feel knocked off kilter. Your equilibrium is off. Now the second stage of this dis disorientation is this, is that you still understand that the circumstance is happening. The only difference is now that you have the perspective from the bottom of that circumstance to look up and see, but I see there's a solution. It's not done. The circumstance is still here. We're still dealing with all this stuff. But I see that there's a solution on the other side. And so that's the second stage of disorientation. The last one is reorientation. Reorientation. Now this third step is very important because this is the place of testimony. This is a place in the position that you realize that I had gone through something but now I'm on the other side, and I can share this testimony of God's goodness and his grace in the midst of those things. 
So those are the cyclical processes that we find ourselves in in our lives and that we can see in the book of Psalms that creates the rhythms of life. Now, the beautiful thing that we see throughout Scripture is there are a lot more disorientation Psalms than there are orientation or reorientation. It's very purposeful. You can probably guess why, because you guys have been alive long enough to experience tensions. To experience disappointments, to experience conflict, to experience different things that causes ebbs and flows in the way that we that we deal with circumstance. And so the beautiful thing that we find in this book is not that it's full of roses, but it also exposes the thorns. It goes through the process of realizing that, yes, there is an orientation that we find. God is good. He is gracious. He is wonderful. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is sufficient. He is all-powerful. He is, he is majestic. All these things that we know about, about God that are true, he is the, he's the truth, you know? He is righteous of all things. And so we find that there are many things that we orient ourselves on what we say that we believe about God, and that's amazing. But then we find that as life continues, that at some point, that orientation is going to be challenged in the midst of a disorienting process. David's life is not void of this. If you're familiar with his story enough, you realize that he goes from being just a shepherd boy, singing songs unto the Lord, helping the sheep that are around there. He's dealing with all kinds of different things that are going on. He helps the sheep. I mean, he has to fight a lion and a, and a bear and some things like that. But, I mean, of all the things, that's... That's pretty difficult in itself, but then he gets thrown into the king's kingdom after being anointed as, as to be the next king of Israel. He's playing the harp now in the presence of the king's court. An evil spirit leaves the presence of the king whenever he plays the harp. That's incredible. And then a Goliath shows up uh, in the middle of, of a battlefield, and, and nobody wants to come up against him because they're all terrified. And then he ends up coming to a place of being like, forget this. I'm going to go after this guy because I know that this is what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to cower away, but we need to press through. So then he ends up killing this, this giant. And then he's elevated exponentially in the kingdom because people are saying Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, David is thrust into a position of leading armies and taking different people through. And then he has supreme jealousy from Saul. Saul starts chasing after him, trying to kill him. Now the guy that he's supposed to be serving is the guy who wants him dead. And then he's running away from the, Then he goes into the enemy's camp because that's the only place where he feels like he could be safe away from the king. He also goes into a cave. He's running away. And then he has a band of all these misfits that come around him. They're like, I'm, I'm trying to hang out with you too. And he's like, you guys are all crazy, but you're the only people that want to be around me right now. And you don't want me dead, so we're going to go through this whole process. And then he comes to the point where he can kill Saul. But he's like, ah, now I'm at a place where I don't want to touch the, the Lord's anointed, so I'm going to cut a piece of his cloth off, and I'm going to show him I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you because I know that that's going to be what the Lord is going to take care of in his due time. I'm not going to take vengeance in my own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so he has all this tension in his life. He becomes king, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and his wife tells him he's crazy and he's stupid. Tension. All these tensious moments. And then when he was supposed to be out to battle, he sees a woman bathing on the roof, calls her to come into his courts. She's not unwed. Actually, she is the wife of someone who's serving him on the battlefield currently. Still takes her as his own, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, then calls for her husband to come back from battle. 
tries to get him drunk to go sleep with her so that he can make it look like it's going to be his baby and not the king's. And that doesn't work because he's stupid honorable. And even in his drunken state says, I'm not going to go back home because nobody else that's at home is able to do the same thing that you're asking me to do. So I'm just going to go sleep and I'm going to go back to the battlefield. So David is in another conundrum. So he writes a letter, sticks it in that dude's hand, sends him out to the battlefield, unknowing to that man that David signed his own death note. That man took that letter, went to the battlefield, charged up in the front line, and everybody else hung back while he went into the battlefield and was executed by the enemy. Then he was met by the prophet Nathan, who Nathan came over and told him a story about a man who took things that were not his own, realizing later that he was that man and he deserved punishment, still went over and petitioned for the Lord to have mercy on his soul. Then his son decided he was going to usurp the kingdom from him, and David was on the run again. Could have killed his son, but decided not to. His son ended up dying in battle. Has the kingdom, finally hands it over to Solomon, and he passes away. That was the Z, ZBV, Zach Bible version. So extreme paraphrase. But you find that there's a lot of tension in the middle of his life. So this is the same guy that wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. Also, I mentioned this last week, but Jesus was called son of David. And it's in the rhythm of the life that David found, even in the midst of his mistakes and misunderstandings, that he was able to go back and reorient himself. Because he had the orientation from the shepherd field, knowing who God was and what he was capable of, and what, what scripture said about who God was. And then all throughout those other times, he was met with a disorientation, reorientation, disorientation, reorientation, disorientation, reorientation. All these methods and modes of times where he thought that he was going to completely die as he was being chased after in extreme position of disorientation stage one, thinking that all hope was lost, writing completely vulnerable about that position, saying, I understand and this is how I feel. I think it's important that we that we are aware of what we're feeling. We have to be aware of what we're feeling, otherwise we can never deal with what's going on inside. If we push it down, then we will only suppress things, and then sooner or later it's going to pop in a way that you don't want it to pop. So we have to, we have to own up to the fact that we're in a disorientation stage, and then in the midst of it, try to find where that orientation process was and where Jesus is in the midst of that. And as we grapple with that tension and with that conflict, then we'll come to a place of disorientation stage two, saying, I may not be done with this circumstance, but I at least see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then you'll find that there's a, an, a reorientation there. But this is the process of life that we have to go through. Sometimes that disorientation process is shorter, very short. Sometimes it's quite a bit longer than what you expect it to be and you would like it to be. So that ends up being more of like an oval than it does a circle <laughs> because you're just really in this part for a really long time. But the good nature of what a good God does is that he helps to reorient you even in your time of need. And so I'm going to read just, just one. I, I, can't, I can't preach without reading word. I think that's, that's horrible. So we're going to read Psalm 119. If you go there for me real quick, Philip. I love this passage. I love this. But it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole, in the whole Bible. 
I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is the longest chapter in the Bible as well. But I'm just going to read the first few verses for you. And this is going to be kind of the setup for what we're going to be going into. You guys ready? He says this, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. I love this. I love this. This whole entire chapter calls us back to the thing that's supposed to reorient us. It's his word. It's his commands. It's his commands. It's who he is. That will consistently reorient us. In the midst of all of our trials, in the midst of all the things that happen, in the midst of anything that we can find ourselves struggling with or dealing with in life, if we reorient ourselves back to what he says and what he decrees, then we will find that it is not my battle that I'm fighting. It is my submission to his word that I've been fighting. It's that tension that Brueggemann was talking about, that tension of relying on my own capabilities and being able to go after whatever it is that I wanted to in the world. Or it's this new way of life of understanding that he is the king. We love the idea of a savior, but we don't like the idea of Lord. He could always be my savior. Yeah, I'll pray a sinner's prayer. Heck yeah. You want, you want me to go to heaven? I want to go to heaven. Absolutely. Let me, let's pray this prayer real quick. Let me get my ticket. Pow. Punch that sucker. Let's go. Got my ticket. Just ready to wave it when it's time for me to go. But Lord, mm, that means I got to obey what you say. We love the idea of a savior, but it's very tenacious to think about that he is our Lord. If you understand what it is that he's asking of us, we have to go back to the word so that we can constantly reorient ourselves. Whenever people are coming against us, when we feel like we find some tension in somebody's words, when we feel like there's tension in the midst of circumstance and in, in our relationships, in our job, in our job occupations, or maybe it could be in uh, within your family unit. It could even be within uh, just just a, 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 the community, the, the things that are going around culture. When there's tension, you have to find the thing that orients you back, that reorients you back to the place that you feel like you were supposed to be home. Where is home? Is your home in his kingdom? Or is your home back in the ruins that you had once been delivered from? Who is it that defines your home? The book of Psalms is a wonderful example for the rhythms of life because it's raw and authentic. It's the writings and the poetry of these individuals who encountered the orientation process of realizing this is what scripture says about who God is. And then holy Toledo, there are some things going on in my life that just are just the worst. And grappling with that to realize that God is still good and I'm going to trust in the orientation that he gave me through the place of home. Home will always be there if you keep your eyes set on that.
And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit in reading his word and hearing his voice that we'll be able to continue on the path of reorientation the entire time that we're struggling with things. People can say all kinds of things. You can have the smartest person in the room who doesn't believe in God, and they can be very convincing about things. But where is home? Is your home in their brain, or is your home in who Jesus said that you are and his salvation set for you? Maybe it's someone who's extremely stubborn, and they're very simple-minded in the way that they, that they think of things, and they're just not going to budge in the stuff that's going on. Are you going to allow that frustration to be your home, or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit and the place that you are the temple and that he is the dwelling Where's home? The book of Psalms is going to help us solidify many of these things. And so I'm excited for the summer. We're going to go through these stages. Orientation, disorientation stage one, disorientation stage two, and reorientation. I'm going to break down a couple specific psalms because each one of these psalms fit in these categories. Um, within those categories, uh, let me just read one more thing for you. And then I'll wrap up. I know it is 12, 12, 11 already. Within there, we find um, we find a few different things. Uh, I believe it's Welterman says that there are these different types of psalms within those categories of orientations. There are hymns, there are laments, there are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of remembrance, psalms of confidence, psalms of wisdom, and psalms of kingship. All these different types of psalms displayed for us within these processes of orientation. So there are these different types of genres on how we can read these psalms. And having that understanding of what's going on in the middle of that really helps us orient to what is happening in Scripture. These are all very poetic, so we can all find application from these psalms within our lives as we should find in Scripture. But we need to make sure that we are not presupposing our own ideals before we get to the text. Because whenever that's just a presupposing, we, we need to make sure that we are not coming into the text and expecting that I'm going to find this. This is going to be a murder mystery, and really it's a biography. When we misunderstand the intent of Scripture, we end up getting into a dangerous position of calling things as though they were not. We end up reading into things and being more sensitive to people's feelings than actually being identifiers of the truth. Recognizing feeling is important, but feeling is not truth. You can find your way to truth whenever you confront feeling, but your feeling cannot be truth because you can misunderstand something very easily and your feelings could be hurt because you misunderstood something. So feeling is not truth, but it could lead you to truth as you confront that feeling and you actually do exploration. But if we're not explorate, if we're not explorers of the truth, explorators of the truth, that's not a word. If we're not explorers of the truth, I schooled one time, I promise. <laughs> if we're not explorers of the truth, then we will never find the truth. We will only, tr only find hurt feelings because you can never satisfy every single person. They are not your home. I'm gonna say that again. They are not your home. We have one home, and that is in his kingdom. And so we need to be able to orient ourselves to the truth. And the truth will then make, set, produce, create freedom in your life. And it is for freedom that Christ set us free. 
not to where we're bound to the life that we've had before. So we're jockeying for that place of ruin. But we can happily deny that place and see this new life that we've been given in Christ as a new creation, as the oldest passed away and the new now has been come. Let's stand this morning. Praise the Lord, the shortest message I may have ever preached in my life. I want to challenge you guys this this whole entire summer. I know that some of you guys have have it just like a summer is just hotter for you. The work has not changed for you whatsoever. But for those of us who are in the school system, it looks a lot different in these in these couple months between other things. But I want to challenge you that that there are some feelings. I, and I, I feel like this was this was happening during worship, that it's just that 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 perspective of realizing who God is and not striving on your own to try to create something that doesn't need to be created is that is that there are some feelings that you've been jockeying with or dealing with or having to grapple with that have been overthrowing your life's process because you cannot rid yourself of these things and you've concentrated so much on the feeling instead of exploring the truth you've forgotten that you don't have to strive to be his you've forgotten that you don't have to make up the lost time on your own that actually the Lord will restore the years that the locusts ate he will restore all the things that have happened in your life before so what what we need to do is reorient ourselves towards the truth and find out what's happening internally in the midst of our pursuit of his truth and so if that's you this morning i want to really challenge you seek the truth seek his word and in there you will find that he will set you free of those things that are internally tormenting you and if you would like prayer we would love to pray with you i'd love to pray with you this morning uh this past sunday night i was in nashville with a buddy of mine tyler and uh, we were having a service called encounter night and there were just incredible moments of freedom throughout the night as people would come up and they would renounce things that they've they've held on tightly with they've held on tight to and we saw many 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 people come to freedom because they've reoriented themselves from the position of this is who I am. I, I love this. this um, and I'm going to end, I promise. Um, a guy named Michael Jr. Anybody know Michael Jr.? He's a comedian. It's crazy. He's actually doing tons of inner healing ministry right now, and he doesn't realize that that's actually what it is, but he's doing it. It's crazy. And, uh, and it's the feeling that happens whenever we, whenever we identify with something to the point to where we bring it home with us. We'll feed it. We'll water it. We'll treat it as if, as if it's our own. We call them pet peeves. We allow these things that have been pet peevish to just become my identity. When in reality, that is not who Christ has called you to be. He has not called you to have to react in anger or frustration at people to the point where you lash out at those that you're supposed to love. That's not, that's not our identity in Christ. You didn't see Jesus doing those things. So in reality, when we, when we give, give those things little names like, this is just how I am, I just, did I just press a button for somebody? This is just how I am? That's a pet peeve. That, that you just pet name that thing? That's not supposed to be there. Does it line up with the word? Is it truth? If it's not truth, then you're identifying with something that's a lie and that's not truth, so you're giving way for the enemy to use you in that area to not be Christ-like towards somebody else. We need to be set free of those things. Find out what it is that causes that, that, you know, you can call it a trigger or whatever you want to, 
and ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, in the middle of that, you can do this by yourself. Holy Spirit, what is it about this activity that causes me to lash out in anger? What is it that happens? And he'll bring up things. He'll bring up a memory from your past, anything like that, that you had a wound that, that allowed you and that caused you to react to somebody in that specific way. And then you can ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, where, where were you at in the midst of that pain that caused me to react this way to where now I'm, I'm just an angry individual when it comes to something like this? Is it because I felt embarrassed in a moment? Was it because I was actually harmed or wounded by somebody who was supposed to love me? And let him go through the process of healing you in that. And then you'll find that as time progresses, those things are not going to trigger you in those same ways because you realize that you've been healed of those things and that that is not your identity. Your identity is not that four-year-old um, little Susie that was dealing with this thing as this person influenced you in that way and caused you to react that way to where now every time that someone triggers you, you are four-year-old Susie instead of, you know, 30, 40-year-old, whoever you are, right? Freedom, 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 freedom. So Father, I thank you for the ability to look at scripture and to realize that you have created us into a new image, into a new creation. Father, I pray that this is not just a regular thing that we do on Sunday morning by just coming to church and then check a box. Because that doesn't mean anything to check a box. We need to know you and to, and to be known by you, Father. So, so help us reorient ourselves into a place where we can understand who we are and who you've called us to be. And Lord, in those moments where we find that we are lashing out at other people, when we find ourselves in the midst of a disorientation stage, Lord, that we'll be able to go back to the orientation process of knowing and recognizing who you are in the middle of the situation, grappling with the pain that we're in, and then deal with it through the conflict, realizing that as we press in and press on and press through, that there will be resolve at the end of it. But if we allow it to continue to press against us and we surrender ourselves to that conflict, to the point to where we're not going to be useful at all, then we will be crumpled underneath that disorientation stage. So, Father, help us to be confident, to be courageous, and to be bold to stand in the midst of that disorientation and to see you in the midst of those things. Father, help us also share the testimony of the reorientation as that happens so that as we come out of these things and these situations, that the testimony of Jesus, the testimony of your goodness will actually prophesy to other people who are dealing with those same issues or with similar issues or just other issues and give them the confidence and the reorientation stage to know that you can do the same thing for them as well too. So Father, give us the courage, give us the boldness, and Lord, let us see you in the midst of all these things. Help us be seekers of truth, knowing that we don't have to strive for your affection, that you've already given it. That we don't have to try to push ourselves to be loved by you because you already loved us before we were ever born. So we give you praise because you're worthy of it. We give you honor because you're so desirable. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You guys be blessed today as you go about.